This is the Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast, episode 48. Today, I'm talking to Alex Newton all about data, categories, and how you can use books and metadata to help you sell more of your own books. Today's show is a little bit special because the interview section is also a video. Alex created a helpful visual presentation to go with the interview today. So if you would like to uh, both watch and listen to the episode and see his presentation, then you can head over to my YouTube channel, which I will include in the show notes. And don't worry if you want to stick with just the audio, then we've made sure that everything was completely understandable without the slides. Last week's question was, what kind of self-care do you do? Edwin Downward said, um, there's always a fight between the voice that cries, I haven't earned the privilege of enjoying self-care and the joy I get from taking a walk by the river. I completely uh, understand that conflict. I always feel like I haven't worked hard enough to deserve a rest. And I'm not sure why that is or why... um, I I see that so often with creatives, but it's definitely a pattern. Um, So yeah, we need to all be a bit kinder to ourselves. Kerry Hardisky said, as for the question of self-care, I like taking a drive alone or even with Tiny Rebel, although she doesn't like to be contained very long anymore. I'll put on a podcast or music. Lately, it's been either Hamilton or Six, the musical on repeat and just go. I'll sit in my car and play Wizards Unite, the Harry Potter version of Pokemon Go. If I can't go somewhere, I'll read or journal. Sometimes just taking a shower feels better than anything. Um, And I've actually apologised to my husband before when taking a a long, hot shower felt better than sex. (laughs) Oh, I love that. That's hilarious. I I love how truthful we are on this podcast. So this week's question is, how do you use data in your writing business? Now, I know that might be um, tricky to answer, but I think there are lots of, oh, can you hear my cat like clawing or battering something in the background? Sorry, Uh, where was I? Yes, Um, uh, yes, data. So uh, it might feel like a tricky question to answer, but there's so many ways, even if it's just, uh, you know, looking at and comparing or tracking your sales or anything like that. So I'd love to know how you guys use data in your business. The book recommendation uh, this week is Intuitive Editing by Tiffany Yates Martin. I have had a wonderful interview chat with Tiffany that I cannot wait to share with you guys. That's coming in uh, a few weeks. And I have been reading her book. I, um, I've, I've got sort of four or five books on the go at the moment. But um, yeah, I after having chatted uh, with her, I cannot wait to dive back in and finish it. I have loved what I've read so far. And I think it will really help you guys to find your best um, editing process. So yes, I will include links to that in the show notes. So in a personal update, it's been another weird week. I just, this whole corona nonsense is just bizarre and um, I really need 
to get my son into a school. I'm stressing a bit as we approach the start of school time. Usually my son would be returning, uh, if not next week, I think it's the beginning of the week after. And that's not going to happen because we have moved area and uh, he got rejected from the local, immediate local school. And the school that they have offered is... Um, not the kind of school that I really want to send my son to unless, you know, worse dire circumstances. So we are on the waiting list for a place and we'll find out on by the 14th if he's got a place. If he hasn't got a place, then I am in trouble and I need to find another... Can you hear my cat? I don't know what she's doing, but it's incredibly distracting. Um, anyway, yes, yeah, so I will need to find another school, which is difficult because lots of the schools are um, classed as inadequate by the sort of rating Ofsted uh, guidance system here. So, yeah, I, I, I'm in a tricky place and I'm worrying because obviously the sooner I get him back to school, the sooner I can ramp up my business again as I have not you know, been able to do as much as I would like to. My mum has been amazing and she's been having Atlas for a couple of days a week and that has definitely helped and I'm super, super grateful to my mum. But, um, it, you know, when you are used to working five days a week and you have the amount of work that requires eight days a week, you know, to, getting two solid days a week is not, just not cutting the mustard. So yes, I am feeling the stress about that, if I'm perfectly honest right now. Um, in other news, I have a new writing setup. So I, I love change, I love um, understanding my process, I love making it more efficient and effective. And one of the things that I suffer, <laughs> what is my fucking cat doing? I'm just gonna close my door. And because of the wonders of editing, I am right back in the room and now without a cat, causing chaos behind me. <laughs> she sounded like a dog as well, it was weird. I don't even know where it was. Oh yes, my new writing setup. Um, right, yes, so because I like to iterate and optimize and um, create the best writing conditions possible, I noticed that I basically have no self-control when it comes to notifications and social media. So um, although I have apps like Freedom and self control um they they require self-control to turn them on uh, when you're writing and i wanted something that was just set up perfectly from the get-go so it didn't require any um you know willpower from me to get it going so i was looking at the free write uh, but they aren't coming out for a little while they've been delayed and there were some kind of dodgy terms and conditions that said oh my god now there's a fucking garbage truck outside. Today just does not want me to record this intro. Okay, thanks to the wonders of editing, the garbage truck is now gone. Um, where was I? Yes, uh, so basically I don't want to have to use willpower. I just would like to um, also train myself, I guess, you know, like operant conditioning, um, the classical dog and the bell. If I have a setup that is just for drafting, then I'm hoping that over time I will associate uh, sprinting and getting a ton of words with that setup. Now, I understand that I'm in an extremely privileged position in that I can buy another technology, another computer, another device uh, in order to do this. And I appreciate that not everybody can. Um, but what I have done is I've brought an iPad uh, which functions for multiple things. Um, 
so this iPad, I think I did mention this on one of the other podcasts, but basically I've put no social media, no emails, no messages on it. I've got Scrivener, I've got um, GoodNotes, which enables me to handwrite notes and I can convert it to text and all of that cool stuff. Um, and I'm using a keyboard, a Bluetooth keyboard, and that's it. And I don't have my phone, I don't have my computer and fuck me, it has made an enormous difference. Um, I haven't increased my word counts per day yet particularly i'm still getting between two and three thousand words a day but i'm getting them faster that is helping so i am hope that over time uh, i will because i've got them faster i will be able to do more i'll just increase that muscle now for those who can't buy another device my but would like to try this my suggestion to you would be either to dress in a certain way would be to um, you know I guess like a write like, like a writing uniform would be to move location do you normally write on the sofa try a table do you normally write at a table well try writing on the floor or on the sofa or in your car that's another place actually that I write without distractions because there's no internet um what else? Yeah, so um, there are lots of ways that you can try and train yourself um, and give yourself a distraction-free environment. I think especially with everything that's going on with corona still at the moment, it is very easy to be frazzled and unfocused. I know I have suffered with that. So yeah, I hope that um, that might give you some ideas. Um, and just to say, basically within... I don't know, a week or two, I have done like 50% of this novella. It is a novella. It's I, I'm expecting it to be less than 25k. Um, but you know, I've done 11k and it feels like I've done it very quickly. And also I'm flowing better. So the words are coming out easier. And I genuinely think this might be because I'm not being interrupted as much. Um, so yeah, and the last bit of update is the prose course. Oh, so I, I can't remember how much I told you last week, but essentially I am still going to release all of the stuff that I've already created, but I'm going to release it in sections. I want to go deeper in, in into each and every topic that I um, create so that there's more depth than um, even was in the book, which was already like a fucking tome. Um, so what I am doing is I'm narrowing and almost going by chapter and each chapter will be a course so that I can provide as much depth and as much value for money in each of those so I'm still aiming for the 8th of October and the first one uh, that I am going to release is going to be around using the senses in your writing so yes and on that 8th of November don't forget I am running the anatomy of prose how to breathe life into your story characters and sentences webinar with pro writing aid uh, and I will include a link to sign up for that in the show notes Rebel of the week this week is J. Renee Lawrence, and I cannot wait to tell you this. <laughs> okay, Jay says, I once worked in a busy area with a horrendous parking situation. I couldn't afford the yearly permit, so I was forced to move my car every three hours to avoid a hefty fine. Sometimes I'd drive around for 15 to 20 minutes looking for another parking space, and to make matters worse, the areas were incredibly narrow. Those were all uh, systemic annoyances that I could grumble through, but what I could not deal with were the entitled drivers who decided to take up two, or I kid you not, three spaces. Of course, they were always stupidly expensive cars like Teslas or vintage Mustangs. I assume their owners didn't want to risk their babies getting scratched up, but I noticed that these cars never got tickets and it made my blood boil. 
I couldn't key the cars or anything, but I wanted to communicate to these drivers that they were pricks. So I brought some big golden star stickers and wrote nice park job on them. Every time I came across an irresponsibly parked... <laughs> can't finish it without laughing. Every time I came across an irresponsibly parked car, I'd slap one on the windshield as my passive aggressive way of giving the driver the finger. <laughs> oh, I absolutely love this rebellion because everybody hates a wanker who is parked. Well, everybody hates someone who parks like a wanker. Like, oh my god, I completely understand the rage and the boiling crossness that you would have um, experienced. And I have to say, uh, this is the second time I've read this story because I read it when you emailed it to me and I laughed so hard then. <laughs> and it's just as funny the second time I've read it. <laughs> oh, so yes, thank you for that rebellion. I think it's absolutely genius. And uh, yeah, I love it. I love it. Uh, if you would like to be a rebel of the week, then please do send in your story. It can be any kind of rebellion, big, small or somewhere in between. You can email your rebel story to rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com or tweet me at rebelauthorpod. No new patrons this week, but as always, a huge heartfelt thank you to all of my current patrons. I love you guys. You guys are literally the best. Uh, not only because you help to keep the podcast running, but you also, like... Oh God, I say it every week, but you really make me feel like what I do is worth something. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. And yeah, love you guys. Uh, if you would like to support the show and get early access to all of the episodes, as well as bonus content, or even joining my Rebel Author Slack group, you can from as little as $2 a month. All you have to do is visit patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black, and that's Sasha with a C and not an S. Let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast. Today I am joined by Alex Newton. Alex is the founder of Klytics.com, a leading provider of market research services for authors and publishers. For the past six years, Alex and his team have analysed millions of books. Why? So that you don't have to. If you love to write but hate maths, this podcast interview is for you. Alex will help us maneuver through the Amazon jungle of sales ranks, categories, keywords, pricing, KU versus non-KU trends, competition, and more. Welcome. Well, hello, and thank you very much for having me on the show. Great to meet you. Oh, no, it's wonderful to meet you too. I have personally brought and read several of your reports over the years. And oh, I have, great. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that is why, um, so our mutual friend Jenna uh, sort of put us in touch, and that's why I was super grateful, because I raved to her about your reports. Um, and yeah, so I jumped at the chance to um, talk to you and, and meet you. So yes, thank you very much. Um, just another note for anybody listening and not watching on YouTube, this show is a little bit different and a little bit special. Usually I only post the audio with a still image on YouTube, but today we are having video with slides because it is a data um, topic and therefore um, Although you don't have to watch the YouTube, you may find it helpful if you do. But we will be uh, ensuring that everybody listening on the podcast catchers will be able to understand everything that we say anyway. Absolutely. 
So first of all, tell everyone a little bit about your journey and how you got to where you are now. And also, are you an author? Well, well, let's start with the letter. No, I'm a data geek. I'm a former management consultant. I'm probably the most non-rebellious person that can <laughs> ever be on a rebel author, rebel podcast. Um, although there is some re rebellion going on as well. I'll share in a second. So um, I'm not an author, but I initially started out actually pondering with the idea of, of being a publisher. And that was right during the gold rush, Kindle gold rush time, which I say is probably six, seven years back. And uh, I do remember at the time I, w I was actually in London. So I'm a German. I live in Switzerland, but I lived in the UK for a while, uh, worked for an American, big American consulting company. So I was, you know, totally bored in a hotel room in, in London and thinking about my life and career in general. And the thing was, I, I had a little daughter at the time, you know, three years old, and I found myself traveling 24 hours, seven, uh, seven days a week, basically, you know, on, on corporate business trips. So at some point you go, hey, do I want to continue like this? And then being asked for a passport by my daughter when I come back home, the answer for me was clearly no. So I thought, what else can you do? So as I said, I was right in the Kim Gold Rush time. And just out of pure curiosity i had signed up to one of these you know get rich with kindle quick type of courses you know where you where probably everybody on the course thought you upload your grandma's recipe book and uh, two months later you will be able to drive a ferrari at least that was the proposition so at the time at this time i started looking at uh, kindle data at the amazon data and hey sales ranks and what does this mean soon to realize that with the you know with the 30000 billionaire romance novel or the uh, 600th paleo breakfast recipe book you may not become a millionaire uh, at the time so um, but i shared the data my initial analysis of uh, the time was like the 30 big main categories on Kindle. I shared that with a couple of authors in the group and they tore it out of my hand and the rest is history. So, you know, months later they said, Hey, can you do this on subcategories? And can you do this on sub subcategories? And I think in 2015, we explored all the categories, tracked them every month. And um, yeah. And ever since then we're providing market research information to all those lovely indie hybrid and traditional authors out there and the artists of the world who are creative and not data geeks so i'll try to bring that into the equation yes and um, i i'm sure i speak on behalf of the author population and uh, the non-mathematical data driven population when i say i am super grateful because i don't really do numbers <laughs> at all so yes i and i love your reports because they they make numbers so accessible and and data so accessible and visual as well so yes thank you um i'm gonna continue to probably to fangirl for the rest of this podcast so sorry about that in advance um okay so we are here to talk about data and how authors can use data to sell more books um, as I've mentioned, I've purchased a few of the Kalytics reports over the years, but for those who haven't necessarily heard about your company or haven't purchased the reports, can you tell them a little bit about what, what, you know, what your company is about and what, what the reports actually give them? 
Absolutely. So uh, basically the whole story starts out with, you know, this big challenge which existed not just now, but already uh, basically already years back, you know, where we all know uh, out there the Kindle space has become and has been for the last six years a, a very, very crowded space. So, um, you know, when I ran those numbers last time, basically in February this year, it was like 6.2 million in English speaking books on the Kindle store, right? And when Whoa. we started out, yeah, when we started out, that number was like 2.7 million at the time. So you see how it grew in five years. And essentially, we still have like 70,000 new titles added every month to the Kindle platform. Amazon has grown in digital terms much bigger than the Library of Congress because they they, unless there is a scam going on, they don't purge any books from the platform. So it's growing and growing. So we've seen another like 12% growth in the supply of books and the sheer number of books being out there. So where do we come into, into the game? Well, first of all, many authors may feel a bit overwhelmed uh, at that sheer, that vast ocean and how to get discovered, right? And, and um, basically, no company in the world or no author service in the world should ever promise results, right? Uh, in, in terms of you're going to be a number one bestseller or this or that. Um, but I think numbers can help improve the odds of success. Nobody can guarantee success. And what we found was basically many authors start out, you know, they work for themselves alone. So they look at their own portfolio. They do experiments with whatever advertising and say, okay, that worked for me. And so they keep doing things. Um, some then say, well, let's work together as an author team. So you have many good Facebook groups, you get discussions with fellows, you have podcasts like this, so you share knowledge. But what we also found is that once you start working with thousands and thousands of books, you, you start discovering certain patterns and, you know, can draw conclusions on certain trends, things going up and down. So, so to answer your question, I, I seldom want to mention the very term big data to an audience because people immediately shy away. Instead, I say, let's, let's get data into a very palatable format of, you know, and this is only for those who view, but, you know, it's really about this chart, pie chart in front of me where a certain percentage of the chart looks like Pac-Man and you see, okay, that looks like Pac-Man. And we try to do the same with, uh, with the books. So to answer your question, Sasha, you said, well, what do we do? Essentially, we provide genre reports that try to compile on like 70 pages each, you know, um, anything that can be known data-wise about a certain genre. We also provide a monthly subscription service for a database of the monthly performance of some 7,000 plus categories. And in those reports, it's basically, you know, first of all, we cover, say, anything from romance, mystery, thriller, suspense, sci-fi, down to very uh, define market niches such as say Regency romance or Scottish romance or lit RPG you name it and within those an author may then have questions such as oh, what are certain trends what are the best categories to put your book in um, who are the top authors I may want to collaborate with who are the top publishers if I want to publish in a certain area um, what keywords to use, what's the top selling cover art. And, you know, then we try to put all this into a palatable format. So just here is one example. We recently did one on romantic comedy. And we then basically try in a very, in a, in a quantitative way to say, well, 
what is it? Is it the flat, flat vector covers that reap up the most royalties? Is it the sexy guy on the front cover? Is it the girl, the romantic couple, the sexy couple, the Mr. Handsome on the cover, and so on and so forth? And basically, the mission is to, to put numbers to the hearsay to prove or disprove certain hypotheses by authors and publishers that may be out there, or we discover uh, certain trends and document them so um, that you basically know what what you're getting into as an author as you you know start your journey into writing a, a book or so or series or publishing it right so i have um found some of the sections where you look at the categories and the keywords to be super useful because it's helped me to tweak some of mine as well like categories keywords genres that i um like sub genres obviously that i didn't even really know existed um and so yes i particularly love it. like you do these wonderful uh like uh, genre cloud is the only thing i can think to call it with like all of the points where the hot niches are and things oh. like that i love those i get a yeah. bit um excited by that <laughs> and i don't even like numbers so you know you're doing something right there um what easy or simple things could writers do more of with data in order to help themselves sell more books right well you know that is a very you know specific question it's but it's a tough question because you know what is simple to one person may not be simple to of another and, and i think there's also this to, to distinguish what's simple versus what's then easy to execute but to, but to not overcomplicate things simply put you can use data for two things and for me the one side of the equation is very tactical and that's what most authors jump to they jump to the one side where they say well how do i market the book right so they jump into very tactical things i shall say uh, in in which categories on amazon you know shall i put my book um, can I do more than two categories and which should they be uh, the seven keywords in the metadata? What, what should they be? Um, what keywords to use in the advertising? Now, these are extremely valid and important questions because these mechanical things are required to be discovered, no doubt. Mm -hmm. but, the, but the other, you know, simple thing to use the data for is, um, yeah, I, I hate the consulting talk if you, if you, uh, <laughs> Uh, apologize you know if you I apologize for that but you know I've been doing this like 25 years so very often I I try to drag people out of the tactics the how to market also to the more strategic questions as to what to write in the first place now we all know that um, many authors just you know especially the the pantsers amongst you you know you just sit down and write because the story is in your head or it's for therapeutic reasons or you just love to write what you love right and so people start out but you know i keep saying would coca-cola launch a flavor without having done any market research whatsoever whether people will like that flavor and I know what you are, you will know what the answer is. So I try to bring authors also to the right hand, uh, to that left hand side of the exhibit we show on YouTube, which is very simply, well, what to write. And that is exactly 
where um, that image comes in that you mentioned earlier, and we may want to show an example later on where we, in simple terms, look at, well, what markets are, say, high in sales, ideally not overly crowded, with a good price level, perhaps trending up. So is there a viable, a fertile ground to start off with, with your project? Yeah, I think that's super important. And um, I might, may now, you may have just got a couple more sales from me because um, I'm brewing another series in a completely different genre. So um, I think I might have to uh, yeah, get a couple of reports. But um, I think, I think, yes, that is important, but also not forgetting that even if when you look at the data and you look at the numbers and it doesn't tell you what you want, that doesn't mean you can't write the series that you want. It may be that you just need to add a different trope in and sort of, you know, uh, what's the word? Um, push it into a slightly more niche area that does have more sales or a slightly broader perhaps a genre that um, would have sales. This isn't about, you know, you don't always have to write to market, but knowing these things and, and being able to see this data will help you shape your A, marketing, and also your books so that, you know, you're going to create something that will sell better, I think. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, this, the spectrum is very, very wide from, you know, say nonfiction authors, um, I had the story of an elderly couple. They said they want to improve their pension, right? So, and it, well, what do you know? I'm so good at gardening, you know, and I want to put out this gardening book on Kindle. I say, well, great, but I just looked in the database uh, that we track the gardening and horticulture category. You, even the top 20 books out of 30,000 gardening and horticulture book on average sell only three, four, five Kindle copies a day each, right? So why bother? On the other side, as a nonfiction author, if they want to prove authority and say, hey, I'm the number one ranking bonsai, how to grow a bonsai book author, that's great, but they may want to have then other channels to make the money. Mm. For fiction authors in turn, um, I think it is important what you say, people shouldn't bend themselves. There is often the talk about right to market, and I, I, I'm obviously an advocate of right to market, but what I don't advise at all is don't just look at the number, because I have people, hey, Alex, just tell us what the hot selling categories are. I can write anything. I say, no, you don't. You know, I could tell you that perhaps legal thrillers are trending, but do you know, first of all, do you love them? Do you read them yourself? And I goes, no. Okay, do you know the the US legal system inside out to write with often with an authentic way? No. Well, do you have the craft skill to to do a certain, you know, dialogue type of thing that is typical for legal thrillers as opposed to romance? No. Well, then don't. <laughs> and and I think right to market starts with what is your in your head, mm -hmm. with what you love, what you know about, and where you have the craft skills for. And then you bring in the data and say, ah, if I tailor it a bit, my cozy mystery, a little bit more towards this whatever paranormal side, that may you know fly better than just the dogs and cats. You get the idea. And I think that's important for the authors who are not into numbers to realize that the creative part can benefit from looking at some of these numbers. 
That's it, exactly. I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, as I would love to be one of those authors that can write to market, but I'm just not. I, the stories come to me that, that come to me. But like you said, um, you know, knowing the data can help me to sculpt them to be more palatable to the market. And, and that's, why, that's what I uh, try to use your reports for. And, and that's sometimes all that is required between you know having we talked about improving the odds of success and sometimes that's all that's required a little tweaking mm -hmm. towards this or that direction of what you already have in mind or even have already put on paper absolutely how should a writer choose their categories on bookstores should they plump for the popular categories should they plump for the more niche categories and uh, or uh, perhaps maybe we should just start with um, just a brief um, explanation of what we mean when we say categories for those who might not have published yet. Oh, absolutely. Well, first of all, why categories in, in the first place? And then, you know, how, how do you choose them? And um, I mean, we could do probably do a whole seminar on, on this. So I'll try to be very brief and concise. But um, well, first of all, categories like keywords, like some other aspects, like, like your book title, book description do matter. Why do they matter? If you go into Walmart, and you want to buy noodles, you have to go to the noodles aisle, right? If you put your uh, put the noodles into the washing powder aisle, it will not be discovered. So that is why categories matter. So when you do go onto the Amazon Kindle store, or by the way, the bookstore for that matter, it, it's all driven like a category-based shopping experience, at least in the print book store, where you have you know anything from arts and photography all the way down to romance, sci-fi, fantasy, mystery, thriller, suspense. And all these... Um, have many, many subcategories. So, you know, a, a typical category, such as, say, romance, will break down into many subcategories, say, paranormal romance, that will further break down into romance, paranormal, vampire, romance, paranormal, uh, ghosts, you name it. And um, that's an important thing to have in mind because it is important for the discoverability of your book. Now, when it comes to choosing those categories, well, that has become a little bit of a headache for, for many authors these days because they say, well, I do want to have, you know, ideally I want to be a bestseller in a certain, a certain category, but sometimes you don't even know that certain categories exist. Now, there are various tools out there, um, ours included, that help you with the issue that what Amazon used to display on every book page, which is at the very bottom, they displayed this whole path of, okay, it is in business and money, international, global marketing. They stopped displaying that information at the bottom of a book page. But if you want to get into that category, you have to know that what we call category path. So the path to that part of the store. So how do you select those? Well, there is, uh, we actually have a whole seminar on it where you can start with high sales, you can start with um, low competition. And I think just to illustrate, if, if you had a, a sky with stars and every star was a category, you can, you could argue that the higher the, the star is over the horizon, the higher the sales and the further it is to the right of the horizon, the more competition you have. And we basically did this for the whole Kindle market for like 
7,000 categories where you basically then can say certain dots on that map have a higher sales but le uh, less competition. So one criteria in selecting those could be exactly those, hey, do I want to put my book into, if it's a mystery thriller suspense, into the big thriller category where you have 124,000 titles, but the sales are super sky high, or do I want to go more niche? Um, and if it's about authority, for example, a nonfiction author who is an expert on country and folk music, they may do well by putting their book into, into biographies, memoirs, arts and literature, composers, musicians, country and folk, where there are only 28 titles and it might be pretty, pretty easy for you to rank in. So these are just two criteria, but usually my recommendation is first is topical fit, right? your category should fit the book. That's the most important thing. Second is you can then trade off a little bit between grow, uh, going broad and narrow. Now, Amazon allows you more than two categories. Many people don't even know this. You have to contact them via Author Central or KDP support to get your book into those categories by naming those category paths to them. And there, uh, what we discovered, for example, big hitting authors such as Bella Forrest, you find their book, they also have a private rep uh, in Amazon. So they have their book in, in like 17 categories. And they straddle anything from literature and fiction, um, fantasy, teen, young adult. So there is a certain breadth argument. And then is this what I uh, say, this ratio between sales and competition. And um, there are other factors entering in, such as your ad budget. You know, if you can compete in a big category because you have a big ad budget, uh, you can do so. So we could do a whole seminar, but it, it gives you a bit of a flavor. You know, it's not just the topical fit. There are other criteria on top of that yet that you can apply. Yeah, and, and I think, um... For the average author, getting your categories right actually requires an input of your time because, um, yeah. you know, you, you have to do a bit of looking and digging on Amazon. Amazon doesn't make it necessarily that easy to find the category paths. Um, but yes, I am living proof that you can have your book in more than uh, two categories I have applied. You have to, it is slightly long-winded at the moment as of July 2020, you do have to uh, apply separately for each different country. So, for yeah, example, that's, I have, that's another point. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you can't just say, oh, put it in all of the categories, you know, across the world. They won't do that. You'll have to do it per country. But um, the point is, be prepared to spend some time on this because you can find some really great niches um, where books are selling. Um, that, that will help you help your category choices. Um, okay, so I get asked about keywords and, and categories a lot uh, because you know writers struggle to know what they should use and also where to find them. Um, and one particular large bookstore that we both know who I'm referring to like to change <laughs> things around a lot. So what what tips would you give to writers to help them actually research? Um, these keywords and categories. So, you know, we've said, you, look, you've got to spend some time doing it, but how do they, how do they actually find them? How do they decide, do the research? Right. Well, first of all, you have to distinguish between the categories and the keywords, right? There are two different things. And what people often also don't recognize is when they talk about keywords, what are they actually talking about? Are they talking about the seven 
and not just individual keywords, but the seven form fields that you can have in the upload part of the Kindle dashboard, where you can basically tell Amazon, okay, I want my book to be discovered for those terms or the so-called permutation of those terms, you know, which is technical. But in those seven fields, you can put in the first field, paranormal fantasy dragon. So Amazon will index it for paranormal fantasy dragon, for dragon fantasy paranormal, for all, you know, the, the mixtures of permutations of these terms. So there, there's a bit of a science behind it, but let's start with the categories. You can basically look at certain books and then, you know, just type in the ASIN number and look on the left-hand sidebar and what uh, categories they show up. There is free tools. There's our tool. Our tool basically uh, is a database of all categories that do exist. So if you want to know what categories or category paths out of those 7,000 simply entail the term romance or adventure, you simply type it in and you have it there. Uh, what we offer on top is that we have trend information and pricing information and performance information on top of just that category path that lets you then make the decision. So that is one part that is the categories. For the keywords, my advice would be you really have to know what you aim for. So is it those filling in the metadata, so the data in those seven form fields of where you upload the book in KDP, or is the purpose of the keyword uh, being an advertising keyword that you put into the Amazon advertising engine? And those are two entirely different things. The first one in the upload board, you have seven form fields and there are good articles out there. You know, should you fill in 50, well, there's a maximum of 50 words that go into each of these fields. And, you know, go check out also, you know, Dave Chesson's research on on um, he specifically, they experimented with 120 authors, you know, different ways of filling out those seven fields. I think his research on this is leading and I, I, I highly recommend it. But the essence is you, this is how you get discovered by the Amazon search engine. That's called indexing. Whether you then rank is a different matter. And since it's an ocean of books out there, you may wanna uh, apply also uh, for um, an advertising account or you have an advertising account and then you start bidding for things that consumers put into that search bar on Amazon. And there you can use thousands of keywords. You can bid for thousands of it. There's where then our reports would, you know, say, okay, who are the top authors? You can do, um, I mean, these are tactics that are widely be debated. You know, should you bid for whatever, Michael Crichton, because you you uh, publish a techno thriller, should you bid for his name as a advertising keyword? You know, is this legitimate? Is it dodgy? Many people do it. You know, do you do defensive advertising where you bid for your own author name on the platform or do you, all sorts of things. So you get the idea. It's different from do I upload my book versus do I do advertising? And once you have those two things apart in your mind um, and first focus on categories and upload keywords, that's discoverability, indexing, and a little bit of ranking as well, right? And then comes the advertising part, and these are two different things. Amazing. I think there are going to be a lot of people taking a lot of notes at the end of this podcast, so thank you. Um, okay, so how? let's say an author has their keywords uh, for their upload, now their upload keywords. 
how often should they change them? What's long enough to know that um, perhaps then a test or some advertising that they've run on it is, is sufficient to know that they either work or they don't work? So again, big distinction, upload keywords versus advertising. Advertising keywords, you can change them all the time. You know, I mean, uh, you know, you stop those that don't work, you add in new ones. Um, there is different philosophy of changing them over or just refreshing, copying them into a new campaign. Let's put that aside. Mm -hmm. What is important on the um, KDP upload keywords is if you tell Amazon, my book, shall be discovered in that first field for billionaire romance, which is, by the way, very crowded, more than 30,000 search hits, right? If, if somebody goes through all these pages results, right, and there's 400 pages, then they cap it. But if somebody clicks on your book, Amazon basically stores that information and knows, ah, for billionaire romance, somebody clicked, the consumer clicked on that book, okay? Even better, if the person then purchased that box, that's what counts the most. That's called conversion. The Amazon algorithm, or basically, that, that's such an elusive term. Their database will store, there was a, somebody typed billionaire romance, somebody clicked on that book, and somebody purchased that book. So that's good for that book. The next time somebody types in billionaire romance, your book will show up higher in the rank and will be pushed by Amazon towards that prospective buyer. If you change that keyword in your metadata to something else in that form field, all that learning of the database may be lost, right? So that's why it's good to have seven fields because you may wanna have two or three of those fields where you really put in terms say this is really i want my book to be discovered for that term now and in five years from now because the amazon engine is learning that that is what my book stands for but you use the other four fields for example to try out certain things and see ah oh, am i rising in ranking or lower so that is a bit the philosophy behind it it's a bit like um facebook ads if you interrupt the learning period of facebook ads um it starts over again and that's mm -hmm. a problem wow. so not too often then <laughs> um okay partially partially and periodically so yes. certain things you keep you don't change all of the things at one point in time and you keep things that seem to be working. Yes, and that's a good rule for um, advertising keywords as well, split testing, just change one thing, one iteration at a time so that exactly. you can tell whether or not that is actually the thing that's having the impact. Um, Okay, so I know you get asked this question a lot because I've heard you uh, speaking and answering this question multiple times, but I'm selfish and I, I fucked up with my first series, so I want to ask you myself. Um, but for those writers like me who made a boo-boo with their first series and straddle multiple genres um, with the same book, how should they approach their marketing and their keywords and their categories? Um, so just, just to give you a complete example, my series, the first book is very definitely, well, I think it's pretty YA. 
the later the books get in the series, the more adult it gets. So not only is that a mistake, I then, so it's heavily inspired by steampunk, uh, steampunk literature, but it's, it's not necessary. It's not set in Victorian era. It's not, um, you know, it, it is not a, ste a classic steampunk. So it's definitely fantasy, but it's also contemporary because it's set partially, you know, it, it, on earth, partially in a fantasy world. Basically it's a clusterfuck of genres and, and, you know, cat categories and all of that stuff. So what the hell do I do? <laughs> right, right, right. Well, first of all, I, I I'd say what what authors have to learn, and it's hard for me to say as a non-author, but as a business person, you always have to distinguish between the packaging and the content. If you sell fitness courses, right, um, and say it's for dudes, for male guys, you know, it will it will be you know get the four weeks, you know bulletproof system for your six pack ab in 30 days, you know, while eating as much as you still want to eat, you know, it's, it's a very clear positioning, but then when people get the course, okay, this will actually entail heavy weightlifting compound exercise, you know, there's then something else that the people actually get. It's the same with your story, you know, in your story, you may meander from sci-fi to cyberpunk to whatever it is, um, but there is something very important in selling, and that is cliches. It works in the music industry, it works in the film industry, it works in the book industry. The cliches can be found on the very cover, right? So if you if you go into uh, and type urban fantasy, well, why do all the urban fantasy, and I, I wish I had here just a, an example at the very hand here, perhaps I do, but if you type in um, urban fantasy covers, here, here it is, and let me share the screen here. And this is not from this year, but the, I think two years before, right? So um, if you look at top selling urban fantasy covers, well, they all look the same, you know, there's, um, in 70% of cases, you have the, uh, the, the leather-clad chick, you know, with sharp-edged weapons, you know, with a magical glow around them, either in pinkish, orange, or bluish. And, well, why are all the covers of the high-selling books that way? Well, because they sell. Now, the point I want to make is, in those books, you know, the stories may have little or nothing to do with urban fantasy, but the way they are being sold is urban fantasy. So my recommendation is when it gets to the tactical choosing of the categories, you can choose 10 categories and they can meander from teen young adult to sci-fi to cyberpunk. But when it comes to the cover and your overall market positioning, you have to choose one lead positioning. So you have to make up your mind, do I want to market this as a teen young adult book? Do I want to market it as a hard cyberpunk uh, book, lit RPG, game lit, or is it urban fantasy? You know, whatever, uh, you know, is your mishmash. But what doesn't work is you cannot mix four different cliches in one marketing positioning. That will never work. Yeah. And my answer to that is the cover is very definitely YA fantasy. There's no question. Um, 
yeah every time i show it to people they're like oh it's ya fantasy so yeah that that answers that's a good and that's a good thing that's Mm -hmm. a good thing because i get so many people that you know hey alec could you have a look at the covers and uh, from a marketing uh, market data perspective and say okay i see your cover first thing is okay it's homemade you know it uses a powerpoint font Uh, it tries to be a synopsis of the book, you know, by imagery. It, these things don't work. They're, yeah. they're not professional. You need a lead positioning, and then you need to research the high-selling books for that lead positioning. And then you don't want to be different. You you want to be better, but you don't want to be different. Yeah, absolutely. You can that the whole point of genre is to be able to walk into a bookstore and know, be able to identify from afar which section is yours. You know, which section is home for you as a reader. Yes, yes, um, yes, yes. And yeah, so I completely agree with that. Okay, you've been creating these reports for several years now, so you have the benefit of viewing data and trends over time. Let's say an author wants to attempt to write to market. How long do they realistically have? And I I know obviously trends change all of the time, but on on average, how quickly does the market actually shift? Well, first of all, people have to realize that the book market does show, uh, I think what's called in in English, inertia, right? So it's like a big tanker, you know, even a whole genre is like a tanker going, a big ship going into a certain direction. 75 degrees you know and rub. and then you, you cannot shift a big tanker and oh let, let's do a 90 degrees turn to the right and sh- you know and just go the other direction um that is not how buying behavior by the way in many industries work you know trends don't change over a period of weeks and in especially in the book industry you have really trends that are two, three, sometimes, you know, 10 years long. I mean, my most favorite example, um, which I which I keep showing people to, to illustrate it is, you know, take vampire romance, take what happened after, after Twilight, you know? I, I mean, Twilight, it's been over how many years? 10, 10 15, years? 10 or 15, yeah. 10, 10, 10 or 15 years. Now, what happened, for example, in that case, in that case was what we tracked here is the, the Google search volume for in uh, for those who, who only listen to this, we're showing a graph that basically shows over time of a period of, of 15 years, the search volume for vampire romance. And it has all its high times, you know, in, in 2008, but then there's a second peak 2012, then it goes down, it peaks again in 2015, 14, 15, and then sort of it's trailing off. By the same time, after that, you have a slightly different long-term rise of three years paranormal romance going up. And then it's like a, a six-year very slow decline, but still being very high and successful as a genre. And, and you have things like, you know, reverse harem and these sort of things where you think that's happening overnight. It's not. You know, the, the popularity of the trope has been pushed by the Korean and Japanese manga and comic industry for, you know, four, five, six years. Then some urban fantasy authors two, three years back, four years back, picked it up. It became a trend. Then lots of people jump onto the bandwagon. So don't think that writing to market means 
oh my God, this is a trend. I have to finish a book in two weeks and market it in three. And then uh, I flourish for six weeks and then I die. That is not what is happening at all. So to answer your question, um, you have almost like all the time in the world. Now trends may come very quickly and it, the faster you obviously act, um, act and the more output you have, uh, the more output you have, the better. But um, I think that's what the whole story is about. And you will, you will see just, you know, excuse my long monologue, but Bella Forest with Shades of Vampire after Twilight has already died off, she she reaped the benefits of that mega trend for five years in a time. I think it's a sequel with more than sixty books in it. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I mean, I think especially with vampire fiction, it's so cyclical because before Twilight, you had Anne Rice, an interview with a vampire, and I am utterly convinced vampire right, a vampire fiction isn't far away from coming back. Um, I started to notice a few quite big authors oh, yeah. tra- in the traditional Bella publishing. Bella Forrest is coming back to it, right? Also yeah. And, she is, huh? But also um, Jay Kristoff, <laughs> who wrote, he's a big young adult and also fantasy, adult fantasy author. He is writing a vampire series now. I'm pretty sure V.E. Schwab is doing shorts or something to do with vampires. And Rennie Adia, I think that's how you say her name. She is also uh, partway through a vampire series and yeah I mean you also had the true blood stuff which went on tv and was very big and I just I think vampire fiction in general is never actually going to die because it's far too popular but it will obviously wave it will come in waves um, as you've seen by the data um, and, and you know and you know why that is no, I don't tell me tell me why it is but I do oh tell me <laughs> Because vampires never die. Oh, <laughs> I love it. Um, so the other thing I was going to say about this is whenever you write to market, even if that market crashes as a, as a fiction market, the likelihood is it will come back around again. And so long as you take care of your intellectual property, so long as you refresh the covers, when that wave comes back again, you still have those books, you still have that intelligent property, you can market it again. So you're not losing anything if you have written to market and that market then dies. You know, because all of these things, like dystopian fiction, obviously that's not very popular right now, but um, I bet it will. I bet it will come back in a couple of years time when all this corona nonsense is over. Well, well, there's two, 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 three things you mentioned. The one was uh, paranormal romance, um, and I, I just happened to have the data right, in, right in front of me, and it's it's an interesting thing to look at because in paranormal romance, um, you see, <coughs> excuse me, you see that there was a big hype in late 2015, and then the market sort of dove and you have all these peaks and valleys of short-term sales rank performance but it sort of had a decline and dip all the way to like march 2018 and then if you don't look at like the mathematical trend through those ups and downs you wouldn't see it but it's exactly like you say we're seeing a trend upswing again in paranormal romance and part of that is driven by the vampires some by the dragons and um, yeah, so the, the trends are happening. And 
while we're talking, I, I will still try to look at um, uh, dystopian romance, for example, teen young adult. There was a three-year decline. Mm. Here, Suzanne Collins comes around the corner, you know, finally publishes uh, the, the the next in the series, and all of a sudden, the whole thing, you know, lifts back up again. And um, I'm just, you know, browsing through the data. Perhaps I have it here because it was a very interesting statistic also through Corona because people think, well, do people read dystopian these days? And, you know, it was a very short-lived fluctuation. Mm. Um, From a reader perspective, Corona is gone. You know, it's... um, Nobody talks about it any, anymore. But here is here is, for example, the five-year trend of teen young adult dystopian romance, and it's um, so you see the coronavirus period on the on the exhibit as well. Um, but what we have is there was this huge performance in um, back in April, back in you know start of 2015. That's where the top 20 bestsellers of the teen young adult dystopian romance category were like in the top 1000 top 2000 of the kindle store all the all the time that value declined down to like 8000 over a period of 4 years then uh towards end of last year it really the whole category took a real real dive and we know there's category pollution and are all the category books categorized correctly no they're not but by and large that was a category where you can still measure it, it it quite well. So actually, before Corona started, you know, it, it went a bit back up again. So there was a distinction between adult dystopian fiction and teen young adult. During the lockdown, teens started reading again. So they went to what worked before, what they haven't come around reading. So they did look at Hunger Games and the Kira Kass type of books. And the whole category rose back up. There comes Suzanne Collins. And all of a sudden, we see a very rapid turnaround of a five-year decline. Now, it's not back up to the level it was four years back, but you see exactly um, what what one or two lead books can do in lifting up the whole ocean of that one category. That is absolutely mind-blowingly fascinating I can't believe um and I suppose the other the other benefit then is that all the other like you say the rising tide um all the other books in that genre will be getting the uplift as well um aha to a certain degree to a certain degree at least yes yeah 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 um okay what mistakes do you see writers making with their data um, wow, what mistakes do they make with the data? The, the first is not to look at any data at all, you know, but that's for me a data geek. So uh, I think I'm a little, uh, I'm a little biased there, but um, you know, what, what mistakes can you make? The, the one is I mentioned before, do you want to use the data for tactical things or more strategic decisions and not knowing what questions you actually want to answer with the, the question and then there are some um, some you know almost like a big beginner's mistake i mean if you don't even know that you can have your book into not just the bicycle code default categories in the upload board but in storefront categories that's a big mistake where people launch their book but they're only in some very broad book industry code type of categories um, that's one mistake the other mistake is is misinterpreting data and the most famous example, simple example, is where you sometimes see Facebook discussions where people go, hey, I 
I am a number one, uh, I, I, I'm a number one bestseller, right? And they, and you then go, uh-huh. <laughs> um, and it turns out it is in that, you know, yeah, I'm the number one bestseller. So Amazon invented those, you know, orange bestseller badge. They didn't invent those bestseller badge for the authors. They invented them to uh, seduce people to buy books, right? So the more bestseller lists you create, the more orange badges you have, the more bestsellers, quote unquote bestsellers you have, the more people you have to click on the book with the orange bestseller. So um, I think for me, the most famous mistake is when it comes to sales ranks and all these things is uh, not to distinguish what is on the book page. There's an Amazon Kindle store paid sales rank. That is how well is your book doing relative to those other 7 million books out there versus the three category sales ranks, which is how good are you doing in that outdoor sport rodeos category where you have what, only 23 other books. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and sort of leaping back to what you said at the start um, about the number of books and, and authors being overwhelmed, a lot of those 7 million have actually never sold a book ever. So, True. you know, they, they don't even have ranks. <laughs> That's the crazy thing. Yeah. And, and obviously, we also need to develop and think further because you've seen that map of, you know, the sales versus um, the number of books in the category. And, and, and I sometimes also think, well, you know, uh, up until now, there was a very good measure. But if, um, if these books are not actively marketed, but now I, I just send out a mailing where I said, if you today put in a search term into the Amazon search bar, you're typically presented with 17 results, 16 books in a list, and one sponsored brand at the top if you search on a desktop or a computer or a tablet. And of those 17 items, um, seven of them, and to do the maths at 41%, so almost half of the books displayed, you can argue, are pay to play, are basically shown to you because some author or publisher pays Amazon to show them to you. Right. So the question when it comes to competition is, is the sheer number of books still the measure of competition or is it the sheer number of people and how much money they bid to be shown to the audience? And probably more the latter is the case. So we're also experimenting with measures and how many, you know, sponsored results do you get for certain genres and items which uh, may become the new measure of, you know, like true competitiveness. That's interesting. Um, which, which is obviously an interesting topic in its own right. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll be interested to see. Uh, are you, have you added those into the reports yet? No, no, no. Okay. Well, we, uh, we're looking at certain keywords, things, but uh, the, we are experimenting with uh, advertising competitiveness of certain genres. But, you know, a bit early to say. First, next thing is uh, we have data now on audiobooks as well. They're not published yet, but... That's obviously a lot of questions we do get and we, yeah. we, do, we do have some data on it. My first audiobooks will be out later in the year. So um, yeah, that will be very interesting to me. Although I am only doing nonfiction. I'm not doing my fiction yet. Um, there was something else I was going to ask there, but it's gone. Never mind. Okay, you crunch data constantly. And while you obviously don't have a crystal ball, I suspect you do have an educated guess as to what's coming next, or at least perhaps some of the cyclical trends that may be due their turn again. 
So what do you think the future of publishing in terms of genre holds? Well, if I knew I wouldn't be talking to you here, I would be a, a very rich publisher driving my Lamborghini down the road. So um, no, but seriously speaking, I think we're, we're observing um, a, a couple of things and that, that's not now naming a jar, but naming a mechanism that you can also uh, observe yourself. I think you always have to distinguish between buyer created trends which I think are the true trends or supply side induced trends, uh, which is a fancy word for authors banding together and trying to create a trend. Um, I think the most uh, recent example would be those, uh, you know, 15 paranormal romance, urban fantasy authors around, you know, Shannon Meyer, Kev Breen, you, you know, you know, you, you, a couple of these big hitters and not so big hitters, I think it was 15 of them coming together uh, with, I think, a very good idea saying, hey, urban fantasy and paranormal romans are getting very crowded, but overall women's fiction is doing very well. And across genres, say, paranormal is still doing very well, whether it's paranormal cozy mystery, whether it's, you know, paranormal mystery thriller suspense, you name it. So what did they do? Uh, and you know the example. They banded together and said, we just create this new thing, paranormal women's fiction, where the, you know, it's not only romance, but it's about, you know, midlife, uh, the midwife, you know, age group 40 years and up, the protagonist. And we mix a bit of a dash of romance, women's fiction uh, with mystery, thriller, suspense. And we just label it and market it as paranormal women's fiction. PWR, right? No, PWF. And uh, and you then, and we're tracking it. I cannot say that, you know, is that sustainable or not? Because in the end of the, I mean, they have big readerships. And in some cases, these things may, um, may take off. We've seen it in romance where all of a sudden, you know, three years back, all of the guys, all the six pack abs vanished from the book covers and there were the black and white um, gray shaded bearded guys, the mountain man all of a sudden. And that was, at the time it was by the way, a scam, right? It was where people banded together with very illegitimate marketing tactics, um, pushing a certain thing, which by the way, in the latter case, in the, the first mentioned example, is certainly not the case. So that's, you know, seasoned authors trying to create something. So yeah, we, we see a bit of a bounce back in paranormal, um, we see certain thriller genres, you know, that were a bit dead getting, perhaps through Corona, getting a, a revival, say techno thrillers have been doing uh, better again um, with it. And then we see some long-term things that seem to, where we initially thought that's just a fad. It's something which is like very short-lived. Uh, four years back, we published our first cozy mystery report and we did that special on paranormal cozy mystery and you know, two, three, four years later, you know the 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 Amanda Lees of the world, you know, are, are still you know crushing it. Uh, you know, animal chase are still crushing it with it. And what started out as a sort of yeah, that's just a couple of authors trying something, you know, very sustainable uh, in the market. Um, okay. This is always my favorite question. This is the Rebel Author Podcast. So tell me about a time you unleashed your inner rebel. Well, if I'm provocative now, 
I think the time was when I, when I started, you know, my new, there were two big rebellious moments. The first is, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm the typical corporate company, you know, classic career type of guy who had a very, you know, cozy cushion of being employed by a company where well, I was even a partner in the company. So, you know, then to six years to basically say, well, let's do something completely different, which is publishing data for the publishing industry. That was a little bit rebellious, you know, at, at least to the people, people around me. But within the publishing industry, I'd say the very moment when we launched Kalytics, that was rebellious because I can tell you there was quite a big a backlash too when I started contacting, and perhaps that's not done in this industry, cold calling people, you know, and and trying to interview romance authors. Hey, what do you think about market research? And you got this huge at the time, you know, I'm an artist. How do you dare ask the question, you know, whether I... I just write what comes into my artistic mind. I'm being a bit provocative now, which I thought maybe welcome on a rebellious podcast, but there was backlash and it was a bit rebellious in that there's even the thought of marrying arts and science in a, in a certain way. But now we're down the road, I think. Um, and there's a good mix of authors, those who still continue. And by the way, that doesn't mean they don't do well. You know, the, artists just write, you know, you mentioned your own example. If you just write what comes to your mind, that's perfectly fine, legitimate, and that's will always exist and has always existed. But the little rebellious thoughts is, um, hey, I know we're all artists, but there should also be the business person in you artist. And the second you mention this or call yourself an indie author, you are also a business leader whether you admit it or not. And the second you are uh, a business leader, you are a rebel towards all those pure artists out there. And the second you, you voice indie author, you will have to look at numbers because you are a business person and have to care for a business. Yeah, I could not agree more. Like I am extremely fortunate in that I actually really like the business side as well. Um, but um, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think I could actually rant about this for quite some time because looking at the numbers and, and appreciating the business side is important for so many reasons, including your financial security. And I get irked with those purists who think we should, you're not a real writer or you're not a real full-time writer if you don't just sit there and write books all day because it's utter bollocks because that's not good financial security. Like if you only have one income stream, you're no better off than being an employer. Uh, sorry, an employee, you know, employee, I, yeah. exactly. When I was, I, I was under threat of redundancy for two straight years and I survived four times. Um, but, uh, you know, if I, if I, if my only income stream was sales, in, you know, book sales, then actually I'm just an employee of Amazon and, and therefore I am no safer than I was when I was in employment. And that's absolutely totally. the antithesis of what I'm trying to do here. I'm trying to protect myself. I'm trying to build a business that is sustainable for the future. So yeah, oh, completely agree. Completely agree. Um, okay. Thank you so much for your time today. Um, can you tell listeners where, and, and watchers on YouTube where they can find out more about you and your company and, and where they can obviously purchase um, Kalytics reports? Well, very simple, you know, just visit us at k 
lytics.com. That's k-lytics.com actually. And I guess you may wanna put a, uh, put a link also there. So I said, you know, there's, uh, there's individual reports. There is, we, we do encourage people to also do memberships because it helps us and helps you. You know, it's, you get a, um, access to virtually all the reports via memberships and the big database, uh, depending on the tier of membership. So just check out klytics.com, which by the way, uh, which is a story in its own. We started out at kindlelytics.com before I launched, but my lawyer said, you don't want to get into a trademark dispute with Amazon and Kindle. So that's when the Indle vanished from the Kindle. So here we are, k-lytics.com. And uh, I, of course, if you have questions, you can always contact me at support at klytics.com. Just uh, put it attention to Alex and it will be channeled uh, to me and I'll uh, be happy to answer your questions. Amazing. Thank you so much. And as I have already mentioned, I highly recommend the reports. Um, so yeah, do go and do yourself a favor and go and get one uh, for your genre and probably a closely related genre as well, just so that you can see and uh, give yourself a bigger strategic picture. So thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for the invite, for having me on the show and the endorsement, the feedback, you know, it was great fun talking to you and I hope the listeners enjoyed it as well. Thank you so much. And thank you also to all of the show's patrons. Uh, if you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, then you can do so by visiting uh, patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. I'm Sasha Black. You are listening to Alex Newton, and this was the Rebel Author Podcast. Next week, I have a cracking interview with Jenny Nash. We have a discussion all about author coaching and both why you might need or want it and also how you can do it as a side hustle to bring in additional income. So join me next week for that. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review.